hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. The science, but now our good friend Dr. Fauci is back in the news for not following it. We explain with Dr. Peter McCullough, who diagnoses it in moments. <laughs> what you're seeing as attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Because all of the things that I have spoken about consistently from the very beginning have been fundamentally based on science. Really? But remember, Fauci is the science. But after four vaccine shots and double masking, Fauci somehow got COVID, and then this happened. Given my age, I went on Paxlovid for five days, and I felt really quite well, just a bit of rhinorrhea and fatigue. And after I finished the five days of Paxlovid, I reverted to negative on an antigen test for three days in a row. Uh, and then on the fourth day, just to be absolutely certain, I tested myself again and I reverted back to positive by the antigen test. The next day or so, I started to feel really poorly, much worse than in the first go around. Well, we told him it doesn't work. We told, said did that months ago. And now he's taking another round of Paxlovid. So what does the science say? The CDC and the FDA both say there's no evidence of benefit to a second round of the drug, let alone benefit to the first round if you've been vaxxed or have had COVID previously. We covered this months ago, but here we are with Dr. Peter McCullough, again, epidemiologist, cardiologist, also author of Courage to Face COVID-19. Dr. McCullough, what in the heck is going on here with Fauci? You know, he should go on to a community standard of care, which has been either prolonged hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, plus steroids in combinations with other medications. Paxlovid has really struggled to join a community standard of care multi-drug regimen. And, and, you know, he's basically a classic case example of what the CDC warned on May 24th of this year they said listen in those who are fully vaccinated based on three papers uh, gupta uh, 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 charness and carlin that in fact if we rely on paxlovid alone there can be rebound and get worse about two to two to eight days after they finish the initial course so he got a pax rebound and he's suffering from that but i, you know, I think he's going to be okay thankfully but Dr. Jay Varma, who's a, a Cornell epidemiologist in New York, is warning that a possible sixth COVID wave, if you lost track, is on the way. Dr. McCullough, um, are vaccines making the waves more inevitable? Because you've been discussing this for some time with the antibody-dependent uh, enhancement going on. There's three analyses by Subramanian, Camp, and Beattie, 145 countries now, ecological analysis, Laura, it's fairly clear that mass vaccination, which has been indiscriminate, is actually making things worse. There's more cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, the more populations are vaccinated. It's a mistake to indiscriminately vaccinate in this setting of a highly prevalent pandemic. You know, in New York, where we were many, last several weeks, we've been in New York a lot, and they, they have these COVID-19 tents. Have you seen them in the street corner in New York? You just walk in any time. Is there any reason for to even have that? I mean, it's, obviously it's expensive, but they're everywhere in New York still. 
You know, I don't think there's any role for mass testing. Testing has only been FDA approved for those who are acutely ill with the with the virus uh, to establish a diagnosis. They don't have any role for asymptomatic or just casual testing. That was Laura Ingram and Fox News. Many of you saw that. That was this week um, live on TV. You know, I am constantly being uh, asked questions regarding uh, the never-ending issues on treatment. And as I explained, there is Paxavoid Rebound. Remember, Paxavoid is the combination of Neuromtralvir and Ritonavir. Neuromtralvir is a novel chemase-like 3 inhibitor, and Ritonavir is an older protease inhibitor used in HIV. So it's three tablets twice a day for five days. In the EPIC HR study, it was tested in people at median age of 45, they're unvaccinated, and there was a reduction in hospitalizations and deaths, but it was a very low risk group, uh, infrequent endpoints. And what we're seeing now are these uh, cases of Paxavoid rebound in the fully vaccinated, it's almost as if their immune system cannot mount an adequate response as uh, appeared to be happening with our National Allergy and Immunology Branch Director. In papers by Adillo and Wheatley, both in 2021, cover the topic of immune imprinting. And what immune imprinting is, is that when the body gets every six months shots of the genetic code that codes for the original Wuhan spike protein, which has now been long extinct, the body's immune system is misdirected against an antigen that is no longer there. So when it sees the real thing, like a BA4 or BA5, Omicron subvariant, the body cannot mount a adequate immune response. And it does appear to be uh, another example how mass vaccination is backfiring, some, uh, uh, you know, backfiring as the pandemic evolves. On my Twitter feed, go check it out. Two papers, one by Boku and the other one by Hay this year, Boku in the New England Journal of Medicine and then Hay from Harvard in a preprint. Both of them show that the fully vaccinated are more likely to stay PCR positive longer and actually be infectious than the unvaccinated. So yet another reason why the fully vaccinated now are propagating the pandemic. And again, all the data, you can go to P underscore McCullough MD on my Twitter feed uh, and take a look at developments there. We've had uh, uh, an excellent week in terms of progress and understanding in SARS-CoV-2. Um, I did want to let you know from a vaccine perspective, another paper that's just hit that I think uh, is important is uh, also on my Twitter feed. And I put them there largely so I can find them and then review them uh, with you. But I just uh, went ahead and, and put this up. And uh, the first author uh, is Fertig, F-E-R-T-I-G, and this was published in Biomedicines. One of the things you notice is Elsevier, the big publisher, uh, no one's going to Elsevier anymore since they are indiscriminately retracting papers that are fully published that go against the narrative. So Elsevier is almost out now, and many of these are uh, published under the publisher MDPI, so that's Biomedicines. Fertig et al., in the paper, vaccine messenger RNA can be detected in blood 15 days post-vaccination. The title says it all. This is a shocker that there's circulatory messenger RNA for 15 days. They actually found the lipid nanoparticles in tissue as well. 
and um, it's uh, circulatory not only in plasma but also in white blood cells. This is uh, raising the issues that need to be revisited regarding blood donation, blood and body secretions. In general, if something's in plasma, it means it's going to get into saliva, tears. Uh, it could be exhaled in exosomes. It's clearly going to be in GI and urogenital secretions. Uh, so this paper, now narrowing it down, uh, does make it, I think, particularly worrisome to have close contact, perhaps sexual contact, with someone who's taken one of these vaccines or boosters within 15 days. I've always said 30 days to play it safe. Now I'm even on more solid ground. Uh, and the last development, I wanted to update you uh, on my, again, on my Twitter feed, but this was announced on, uh, I believe, July 1st. And that's an announcement from the uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, HHS ordered 2.5 million more doses of the Genios vaccine, uh, which is done uh, jointly with a company called Bavarian Nordic. The United States had already purchased 13 million doses, and you should see uh, what the United States has been working on. HHS and BARDA has had years of planning in this press release for this huge investment. There's a national uh, a strategic stockpile with already 100 million doses of the older smallpox vaccine called ACAM2000. They have 1.7 million treatment doses of TPOX, the oral drug for monkeypox or smallpox, very effective. Uh, and as of June 29th, the CDC said we only had 350 cases of monkeypox. It appears to be low transmission. We're not hearing um, uh, much about spread of the illness. Patients treated at home with oral TPOX. I'm not saying uh, that it's um, necessarily a bad thing uh, to be ready, uh, but this seems to be a massive overkill. These companies have been waiting for these federal contacts and purchases, and with uh, th this number of cases without a lot of uh, activity in terms of spread, or certainly not in the news cycle, uh, to me it seems to be uh, a bit of an overreaction, a hyperbolic overreaction, and I think we all should be wary uh, of that. Well, we have got a great show for you this week, and I wanted to introduce to the audience a friend, but also really a terrific human being, Mr. Chris Gillespie. Uh, Chris uh, is uh, of some note in terms of his contributions in sports. He's actually in three different sports hall of fame, including the National uh, uh, Sports Medicine Trainers Hall of Fame. And he is because of his innovations in sports training, and he's been at the collegiate level, largely at Samson University, and this is in Alabama. And he basically, from the very beginning, crafted up a way of the best evidence-based approach to actually providing athletic training and safeguarding athletes for medical problems. And he has quite a reputation in terms of his innovations in managing African-American, largely African-American, although there are some whites who have it, that have sickle trait. Remember uh, sickle cell uh, anemia where it's autosomal dominant from mom and dad, the, the, the sickle cell itself, that illness is basically incompatible with uh, formal athletics since uh, it causes so much chest pain, disease, and frequent sickle crises. However, the sickle trait, which is having one normal hemoglobin gene and one sickle hemoglobin gene, uh, that one can precipitate sickle crises 
uh, and needs special attention. That's what Chris has done so much of his innovation. Uh, but with his approach now, he's really taken a careful eye on COVID-19, the illness, and now COVID-19 vaccines uh, in athletes. Uh, this week in the news cycle, or in the last few weeks, we've had former running back for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, Marion Barber. We've had a former linebacker and uh, a really kind of notable announcer, Tony Saragusa. Uh, and we've had current uh, Baltimore Ravens linebacker, Jalen Ferguson, died. There, uh, it indicates uh, in the reports that he died of a cocaine drug overdose. And then former first-round um, draft pick in the NBA, uh, Caleb Swanigan, who graduated from Purdue, uh, he died of natural causes at age 25. Now, none of these athletes uh, had any mention of COVID-19 vaccination uh, one way or the other. It didn't say whether or not they had received it or not. Um, but those are uh, four uh, prominent deaths that happened uh, within the last week or so. Now, we do have one that I think is uh, notable and worthwhile talking about, and that is um, the daughter of Sean Kasten. Sean Kasten is a Democratic uh, lawmaker in, uh, in Illinois, and his daughter, Gwen Kasten, age 17, um, uh, died and was found dead uh, at home in her uh, sleep. Now, Kasten had previously tweeted that he was going to have his daughters vaccinated, his 12 and 17-year-old daughter. And then in uh, USA Today, uh, it says here, Representative Sean Kasten opens up of a 17-year-old daughter's death. There are no words for the loss. Um, the only thing we know about her death is that it was peaceful in a family statement. Um, it says, in a post shared to social media, Kess and his family spoke about the teen named Gwen and detailed her last hours of life. On Sunday night, we had dinner as a family, and she went out with some friends for a few hours. When she got home, she said goodnight to Karen and I. I texted a friend to make sure she got home okay and didn't wake up on Monday. Uh, she got home okay, and she didn't wake up on Monday morning, the statement said. In part, the only thing we know about her death is that it was peaceful, and the only lesson we can take from this is to savor moments you have with your loved ones. Um, you know, I can tell you this is just such a bizarre statement. As a doctor, um, you know, I've uh, had patients uh, in my career and family members and interactions with others when a teenager has is, is died. And I can tell you uh, the storyline is almost uh, a long battle with cancer, such as leukemia, uh, or uh, a long battle with congenital heart disease, with heart transplants or lung transplants, uh, cystic fibrosis, uh, a fatal car accident, a drug overdose, suicide. When it's 17 years old, it's just not a mystery how a child dies. They just don't mysteriously die in their sleep without any parental concern, outrage, or or investigation. The parents, uh, uh, a reasonable parent would want to know, why did my 17-year-old child die? Kasten had clearly tweeted that he was going to have his children vaccinated, and all we're left is with that observation. So I'll leave it there and let you try to put things together. Um, we've gone over this before. Uh, in the book released by uh, Professor Matthias 
Desmond from the uh, University of Ghent in Belgium, he says this is mass formation. And when people are in mass formation, it's almost as like they are in some form of a spell or hypnosis. It's almost as if Sean Caston is in a form of hypnosis and he has not come to the stark reality that his daughter has died within a few months of taking the COVID-19 vaccine. So let's get on to the backside. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's healthy cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use healthy cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The immune super boost, focus and memory, and the REM sleep supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. Many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off any order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Well, it's the middle of summer. It's time for summertime parties. But watch out. SARS-CoV-2, Omicron, BA4, BA5 subvariants are still highly prevalent and you can get exposed. Make sure you have Cofix Rx on hand. This product can be used twice a day with the goal of preventing COVID-19, if you've had an exposure in a large group setting or a one-on-one setting where you find out later on, in fact, someone has COVID-19. So go to the America Out Loud website, go to the banner bar, 
and click Cofix Rx to get a discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the microphone someone who really is of historical importance in the area of sports medicine, someone who I've gotten to know, been incredibly impressed with his knowledge base, his historical understanding, uh, and his perspectives on where we are going with uh, health, actually critically, uh, the health of conditions that can actually take one's life during uh, competitive sports, and that is Mr. Chris Gillespie. Chris received his bachelor's degree from Mississippi College, went on to receive a master's degree in what's now known as the University of Louisiana in Monroe. Uh, And he's uh, done postgraduate work and had a distinguished uh, career as uh, an athletic trainer. Uh, He's had administrative roles and advisory roles. Chris, welcome to the Mulcullough Report. Well, it's a pleasure, as as always. Uh, We we uh, have banter back and forth um, on uh, social media quite a bit and can see each other occasionally, but it's a pleasure to be on your show. Chris, why don't you tell the audience a bit about what you've done professionally over the course of your life and, and, and why did you land in the Hall of Fame? Well, I, um, he said I went to Mississippi College in Clinton, Mississippi. Uh, I was um, going I knew I wanted to be in sports medicine of some sort. I, I had an opportunity when I got through in, uh, in Mississippi College, I could have gone to medical school, but I had gone to um, MC on a, on a scholarship as an athletic trainer, taking care of sports, you know, with, as a student and could have a staff of students just like I had later on in my career. But um, in my time at Mississippi College, I realized very quickly that, this was what I wanted to do. And um, I left there. I graduated um, uh, at the Mississippi College in 1980, went on to uh, Northeast Louisiana University, which is now UL uh, Monroe, um, and got my athletic training certification and the credentials I would need to, to go forward in the career. Uh, finished my graduate work there and stayed one more semester, did some postgraduate work, and then. Um, I had been looking for a job, knew I wanted to work at the college level, and really nothing had come about as far as being an assistant somewhere. And um, I got a call one day that someone said that Stanford University, S-A-M-F-O-R-D, in Birmingham, Alabama, is looking for a head athletic trainer. They've never had uh, a sports medicine program, never had a head athletic trainer. They're looking to start something. And... Uh, I said, I don't even know where that is, you know, and um, even being Mississippi originally, I had never heard of Sanford or maybe I'd heard of it at some point, but it was a kind of a school like Mississippi College, a private, highly academic school, um, but in Alabama, it was its equivalent, and um, I had three of my buddies that were older gentlemen that taken me under their wing and and said, you've got a bright career ahead of you, and said, we think this would be a great starting point. I actually went on campus and drove onto the campus. As soon as I drove on campus, I knew I was going to take the job to a beautiful place and um, thought I'd be there a couple of years. 
Um, I was the youngest head athletic trainer that we know of in the country at 23 years of age, Division One school. Uh, that doesn't happen today. And, um, it, you know, you grow with the position. And so I got there and literally I was not only the head athletic trainer, I was the only athletic trainer. And um, the young man who wound up being my first student now is the director of sports medicine at the University of Georgia, as a matter of fact. So, and he and I both are in the Hall of Fame, uh, which is um, a unique uh, thing in itself. But I stayed there, thought I was going to leave, and had a great leadership president there, was wonderful to me. He took me under his wing for some reason after he passed away. His wife told me he saw something in you that he didn't, didn't see yourself. He saw you, himself in you at your age. And um, so he would ask me about stuff that was not even athletic related. And we just had a wonderful relationship. And I wound up staying uh, all the way up until 2014. But I left one time, and I don't even know that you know this, but in 1999, I actually took the director of sports medicine job at the um, University of Alabama. And Dr. Quartz called me less than six weeks later and said, uh, we need you back. And actually convinced me to go back to Sanford. And it, it was as if I never left. They just treated it as vacation time. So um, I wound up owing them a debt of gratitude and staying there and um, uh, for all those years. But during my time there, we grew a program that was just me and one student. And when I left there, there were probably 10 or 12 uh, full-time athletic trainers, uh, um, a, one of the top uh, athletic training education programs for undergraduate students in the country with somewhere in the neighborhood of between 24 and 36 students at any given time. Uh, we were taken care of by world-class um, orthopedic surgeons, and, and we were highly respected and benchmarked by major schools all over the country, they would fly in and see what we were doing. And we really got to create what we wanted to do and, um, and do it the right way. And, and being young and probably a little bit brash, I just didn't know to take any other way. I just did things and they landed. If they didn't work, we did it something else. If they did work, we kept doing it. So, um, but during my time there, Oh, you know, when I first got there, they didn't have football at all. And so in the second year I was there, they came to me and said, Fisher, the only person on campus to ever work college football, and we need your help. We're going to bring back football. And I became an administrator. I did so much stuff and, and was um, basically an associate athletic director uh, without the title at first that helped bring back football at Sanford. And, and um, and then, I mean, I did everything. And so I got to know everything about the inner workings of an athletic department that I didn't know up to that point. And, and uh, the administration really, really depended on me and would listen to what I had to say. Now, Chris, Chris yeah, Chris, you're, you're, you're credited with uh, basically developing the approach of how, how do you actually educate and train athletic trainers, but, um, you know, you received a lot of notoriety for your work in uh, sickle trait in athletes, af largely African-American athletes with this um, genetic hemoglobinopathy. Can you, can you shed some light on how your career was shaped well, by that? When we, 
when we started football, uh, it changed the dynamics of our university campus um, to predominantly, it had been a predominantly female campus, and then it went to, you know, uh, a lot more males. And, and obviously, because of more athletes, we had more African-American athletes than we had prior to football. And um, I believe it was in, a, it, we started back in 1984, um, and as far as football coming back, and in the early 90s, um, we had a coaching changeover and went to Division AA in football, and we were going to be competitive. And we were doing a, a conditioning run one evening. I, I I knew about sickle cell trait, but I didn't know much about it because the NCAA in their handbook that they gave all the um, member institutions in sports medicine, they it, it said it's benign condition. You should treat it any different than anything else. And this young man was running a mile um conditioning run on a cool evening in August for Birmingham and I was actually relieved it was cool but only about halfway through about the I think it was just after the second lap um he came over to me and said he's cramping he said he was cramping uh, this young man was a, an elite athlete and I you know his legs weren't cramping his legs were supple and pliable and and just like they're supposed to be he didn't appear to be in distress as far as heat went, but his blood pressure wasn't good, and some things just didn't look right to me. Uh, and the intuition uh, kicked in, and we got him to our uh, trauma center uh, where our team uh, of docs, and along with me as far as just telling them what, what I felt like was going on, what I saw. And they got oxygen and, and IVs in him quickly, and as you know, as a cardiologist, you've got to get oxygen because what happens in sickle cell trait is, is if they don't get oxygen, they don't do well in aerobic activities. So they don't get oxygen in the red blood vessel, I mean cell, which is uh, Teflon-like and, and round and flows through the vessels quite readily. They, they sickle and they hook upon each other and they wind up kind of backing things up. Uh, and log jamming. And let me, Chris. Let, Chris, let me just point out that um, in sickle trait, it's, it's an autosomal dominant. So people who have a, a normal hemoglobin gene, that you know, and they get an abnormal one, the the sickle gene, they do have uh, partially sickled cells. And you're right, they don't carry oxygen the right way. But if there's a lower oxygen tension, they circle sickle even more. And so they start to clog up. And so what you're describing is the need for immediate oxygen administration to stop this vicious process, which can be catastrophic. It can be. And, and you know, and, they, and the NCAA called it benign. And so what we did was after, after really finding out what was going on, he went in, he had rhabdomyolysis, which is lactic acid buildup and, you know, the kidneys not being able to keep up and he's got the rhabdomyolysis or breakdown of skeletal muscle tissue. His uh, uh, CK levels were really, really high, um, just like someone who was, was having a heart attack or something. They were very high. Um, and uh, so we, after putting our heads together, we're a team doc. So we had a hematologist. We had 
um, you know, different doctors who we felt like could lend some light on what we were thinking. We, uh, we established a protocol where we were going to educate these young guys. And we, it's about 8%, somewhere between 6 and 8, according to what you read, of black athletes or the black population has sickle cell traits, and probably about 2% of non-blacks have sickle cell traits. Um, and so we decided we needed to test, number one, and find out, and we were going to test everybody. Uh, and two, we were going to change their, um, their, their diet. We were going to talk to them about diet. If they were sick, they had to let us know, you know, all those types of things, hydration, we, we assigned a person to anybody that had sickle cell traits to follow them around, around with electrolytes and a water bottle. Everywhere they went in practice or, or a game, um, we had oxygen, supplemental oxygen for those guys on the sidelines from then on. And then we also changed their conditioning protocol to the point we just said, you're not going to run anything over 100 yards. We're not going to let you go into aerobic uh, deficit again. Hey, Chris, Chris, I got to ask a question. You made me think of something. You know, I watch a lot of football, uh, college and pro, and uh, sometimes, you know, I'll see them go over to the sidelines and some of the athletes go on oxygen. And I've always thought to myself, boy, they're out of shape if they need oxygen. You know, I, I go run. I don't need oxygen. But indeed, are some of them actually taking oxygen because they have sickle trait? Possibly. That's why we did. We didn't allow the other ones. I've always believed I'm like you, you know, the other kids would ask, would it help them? And I go, well, that's not why it's here. They, they, they actually have had their own mask and everything. And so it was not allowed to be by, by the, uh, unless we were in a high, high uh, altitude or something like that, we didn't, we didn't allow uh, if we were traveling or something, we didn't allow anyone else to use it. Now, I will tell you, it, it is used uh, as um, ergogenic aid, so to speak, um, on many sidelines uh, all over. You can go and ditch sporting goods and buy a can of oxygen, you know, so um, that you can actually get some supplemental oxygen. You know, it's got like 100 hits on it. Uh, so in reality, it's probably just, Ergogenic aid, like I say, just something that they think works. But in a sickle cell kit, we ran it full flow, and, uh, and we we would ask them to do it, you know, almost every time they came off the field. Um, now, and there were times, you know, when we did when they went real hot or something like that, we might not use it quite as readily. Some of them actually knew when they needed it; they actually could feel something, you know, and or just didn't feel right. But we never, after that day, we never had another problem by changing all those progressions for, for not running 100 yards or, or, you know, coaches fought us on it until, until their, they saw that their performance levels skyrocketed. And then they were like kicking them out of drills and say, go down there with Chris and then do what you're supposed to be doing. And, um, and so we continued to do that. And we fought a battle and I finally got Dr. Randy Eichner and Scott Anderson from the University of Oklahoma had been studying what we had written in the position in sports medicine early on. And they had been kind of mimicking what we did and we didn't know it. And um, so I found out about it and I asked Dr. Eichner, 
to speak at a conference that I was putting on. And Dr. Eichner went to introduce, I went to introduce myself. He said, I know who you are. I've been stealing your stuff for years. And so um, they got behind us. And with their help, we were able to uh, form an interassociational task force on sickle cell trait in the athlete that had pediatricians, all types of team physicians, the cardiologists, all the different plus athletic trainers, plus, you know, administrators, plus all the different people from the associations that potentially help us with this. And we knew we were right. And, uh, but nobody wanted to believe it. They kept telling me it's discriminatory. Well, no, it's not. We're testing everybody, you know, and so is the disease to a certain degree. It's discriminatory. So we finally, I think, got the point across. I had an argument with this, uh, major doctor you would might recognize his name um and i finally looked at him and i said did you go to medical school <laughs> and he said yes and i said well they didn't teach you this and i've lived it so um and he said well you got me on that one and so from then on he was a big proponent and we wound up getting it approved i got a phone call from ncaa and they said uh hey congratulations the work that you've been doing all these years is going to pay off and protect a lot of kids going forward. And they literally wrote the uh, protocol that the NCAA now uses based on what we did. And that was became what I was known for. And uh, even though, I mean, I was involved with head injuries, I was involved with neck, head, head and neck, I was involved with all kinds of other things. Uh, but that became my area of expertise. As I said, I believe when I was speaking at one of the events we were at, I said, you know, when I got that phone call, I had to pull over because the emotions got me because for all those years they didn't believe me and they said I was crazy. And then all of a sudden I became the, went from being crazy to being an expert and I didn't know what that was actually going to mean. And it meant lots of phone calls, lots of speaking engagements, and coast to coast, lots of consulting um, of how to implement something and um, and really, we worked with some of the historically black institutions as well, uh, trying to you know make sure that they could get tested and how they could get tested for free with you know the, some of the sickle cell foundations and things like that. Um, and so we got involved in all of those types of things. And, and as you said earlier, that I believe that was the exclamation point that wound up putting me into the Alabama Athletic Trainers Hall of Fame. Uh, in 2002 and 2008, I went to the uh, Southeast Athletic Trainers Hall of Fame, which is the seventh southern state, um, uh, which encompassed a lot where the SEC is, and then also the um, uh, the National Athletic Trainers Hall of Fame, which is the highest thing you can reach in our profession uh, in 2012. And, you know, it was a goal for a, for a long time, not so much for me personally, but it would have meant I did what I was supposed to do. I did my job for my athlete. You know, that was the reason I had it as a written goal when I was 23 years of age. Well, Chris, and, uh, Chris, that's a testimony to you uh, making careful observations, realizing some something is terribly important as a health intervention, and then being assiduous and relentless in advancing this forward and overcoming a lot of skepticism uh, in the end. Now, now t t tell us, yeah, let's transition, uh, Chris, 
to your observations of SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID pandemic uh, in um, in sports, as you know it, we can restrict it to football well, or, or you know whatever well, sport you want you to. Know, I, I, I actually worked all sports. It just so happened that sickle cell trait you just didn't see it in athletes that were non-football players or non-sprint sports because those kids selectively opted out; they couldn't do it. You know, so. By the time they got to us, you know, we were only seeing them in sprint sports. So, but I actually was oversaw all of the different sports. So I saw it across the board. Um, you know, um, one thing that I will say as I enter into this portion is one word you and I have in, and you said, I remember the first time you said it to me, you said, be re- bold and relentless. And what you didn't know is on the inside of my Hall of Fame ring is engraved Relentless Pursuit. Oh, I love it. Um, and um, because everybody always said, Dr. Quartz, the president that, that believed in me, um, he said, you are the most relentless person I have ever met. And I said, coming from you, I'm taking that as a compliment. And you might as well add pursuit to the end of it because I won't stop. Uh, knocking on the door if the answer should be yes i'll keep knocking until somebody opens the door and he said that's good enough with me and from then and because of that probably when uh you know and i well i guess it was a spring or early summer of 2021 when the vaccine started rolling out and we were trying to make a decision because you know nobody knew. I mean, I mean, every every guys like me with a family. My wife was being kind of told, "Hey, you might want to get the vaccine because she worked in a in a retail. She's a, a manager, a very successful, and they couldn't afford to lose her. And so they're like, you know, you might want to do this.' And they started paying some dollar. And and it was I think in those days, and I think you would agree with me. Nobody, it didn't feel right, but nobody really thought much about it. It was just new and different. And well, are we supposed to do this? Or, and a lot of people just did it thinking it was the right thing to do. Well, I'm just skeptical enough. Something doesn't look right or feel right. Or as you use, I say absurdity, uh, uh, treat absurdity with absurdity. And you use the word absurd. If something looks absurd, then it probably is. And so I just didn't feel good about it. And so I called my, my, um, my doc, uh, my primary care guy, a young guy. He said, you just need to take it. And I said, wait a minute. I want to know why I need to take it. And so he, he got a little smart with me, and I said, I pay you. You're fired. And I literally fired my primary care doc. And so I called a friend of mine who I helped train. And he said, just take it. Spike protein stays in your arm. And I said, Doc, it does not stay in the arm. It goes everywhere. You know it does. It has to. How does it know to stay in the arm? You explain that to me and we'll talk about it. And then I asked him, what's polyethylene glycol? Because I'm allergic to it. It's in uh, Miralax, and I've had a reaction to Miralax. My first colonoscopy, I had a reaction. It's in it. They said, don't take it. He said, well, you can do the J&J. And I said, I'm not, I've read too much about blood clots. I'm not going to do that. But I'll take my chances, I think. And he said, well, I, if I were you, I would get it. And I said, you know, you give me some answers. And, we'll, and, he, 
and we'll talk. And he's never been able to answer any of my questions, ever. Now, Chris, so, uh, Chris, di didn't you end up, so you deferred on the vaccine, didn't you end up getting COVID anyway? I did. Uh, and um, I will, um, let me let me tell this, because it leads up to that. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we decided, I told my wife's boss, I told everybody in my family, we're not going to get it. And I said, your adults, my two old, my two oldest daughters, or your adults. I said, I'm just telling you what I know. I'm starting to look into this now. Wait till, wait until I find out what's going on. So I started digging, and and realized that there's some there's some things wrong here. And then I start the thing that really got me hooked was when I heard Ryan Cole speak, and he showed a slide that eerily looked like sickle cell crisis. And, oh, my slides from years and years ago, they looked alike. And some of the early studies out of China that I had found were saying that the spike protein did change the oxygen saturation of the red blood cell, thus that's the blood clots and the misshapen red blood cells. And some of the early stuff, as I recall from Dr. Cole, had mentioned that. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is worse than I thought. If this, this is true. So I went into it looking for what I thought we were going to do and discovered quickly that, uh-oh, all these guys out here that I know in athletics, they're, they're mandating these, they're giving them, they're already on their second shot. Are we going to have a big problem? And uh, that's when I started, you know, and I started to contact you and, and, um, and you know, we, we've done a few things together and, and have gotten to be friends. And, and it's because, you know, we saw things, you know, I was behind looking at a different angle. And then I'm thinking numbers, 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 80 million athletes across the, this country. And I'm worried about all of them. And uh, now we're going to put these injections in them. And what's it going to do to a kid with sickle cell trait? What's it going to do to a kid's heart? What's it going to do? And I started asking all these questions. We hundreds and hundreds of papers anything I could find and then talking to you and then talking to all the guys that we were on uh, one of the tours with and, and some of the meetings and stuff and just validating everything I thought to be true. And you said to me one time, you're going to be on the right side of history and I'll be doggone if we're not going to be on the right side. We already are. Hey, Chris, we already are. Chris, you bring up an important point that was never considered in the clinical trials. Uh, but what about, you know, this fraction of people who have, they have sickle cell disease. Uh, there's somebody in my office who has this young African-American gal, or they have sickle cell trait, hemoglobin C, SC disease. Uh, there's a variety of hemoglobinopathies that Asian Indians have various forms of thalassemias. So there's been a, a variety of uh, genetic diseases for hemoglobin formation. All of them basically are uh, evolutionary ways of trying to defend the body against the parasite, the um, the malaria parasite, and but but the point you're making is what well, what happens if they take one of these vaccines where the spike protein now uh, is causing what you saw on the slides is what's called rouleau formation. That's where the red cells wow. start to stick together. If it gets really bad, uh, David Scheim, who's been on the McCullough Report, David's a a former NIH researcher. David calls that next stage hemagglutination. 
It's actually agglutinating oh. cells. They start to clog together, and ultimately, when it gets really bad, they form complete blood clots. Well, and, and this very scary, I mean, it was one of those moments, and I described it at 2 o'clock in the morning. My wife came in, and tears running down my face. The first thing is something was wrong with me. And I said, I think I just found out something maybe no one else knows. And I said, God called me to save a generation of athletes once upon a time, and I think he may be doing it again. And I said, you know, I said, I don't know where to go, what to do. And uh, that's when I started bugging you and trying to get in touch with you. And then, and then just basically just stay it. Well, that's where the relentless came in. I wasn't going to stop till I got some answers. And, and I've gotten a lot of answers. And, you know, one of the things you just mentioned, think about they're telling people with sickle cell disease and traits and other and autoimmune and all types of things that y'all need to take this. And they're the ones that shouldn't be taken. If you if if you want to if you want to play their game and say, okay, this population needs to take it in this population, why would you ask somebody to take something that's going to make the what they have already worse? It doesn't make any sense. Or, or Chris, at the very least, why would you ask somebody to take something where uh, it hasn't been tested or shown to be safe? And, and, and it's, it is, it's very um, well understood it could be dangerous. So uh, we outlined the hemoglobinopathies, uh, sickle cell being the, the lead one that you've done so much work on. But there's also blood clotting disorders, Chris. There's factor V Leiden and protein C and S deficiencies. Uh, th there are um, uh, uh, prothrombin variant, uh, 2021A. Uh, dysfibrogenemias. There's a whole variety of blood. People know this. There are genetic syndromes where people are more likely to, to have blood clots. And here we are giving a vaccine, which is known to cause blood clots. Well, you know, as I told that young doctor, I said, it, it's not going to stay in the, in the uh, arm. It's going to the brain, the heart, lungs, kidneys, the pancreas, reproductive organs. Could it go to the spleen? Could it potentially make a, a young kid? I, you know, I had a kid with a ruptured spleen one time. Could it make somebody more susceptible? To a, I said, we don't know these the answer to these questions and until we do. Well, why are we doing this? And, and so I went through, you know, I've been, you told me one time, collect all the articles you can. And I just searched everything I can find. And I try to find every obscure, every, everything. For, and I got to the point where I was, I was just trying to find Anyone within the age parameters of the athletes that I had worked with, or as Mayo Clinic classifies them, any athlete from 35 years of age and below, only one out of like every 50 to 75,000 have cardiac arrest at any point in a year. All right, but we're seeing cardiac arrest. I think you said last night on the podcast uh, there were a thousand cardiac arrests that had already gotten up to in Europe right now. Um, some of them have been resuscitated, some of them not, and, but the deaths were up somewhere in the neighborhood of 500% over the previous year. Mm -hmm. um, but I got to looking at the different um, anomalies or the different conditions or brought about by what we believe to be the vaccine. There's no other reason for it that we can think of. Uh, every, people want to say there is, but I, I can't think of one. So I went down the list. And I said, myocarditis, 
in my whole career, how many cases of myocarditis did I have I, with the, the thousands of athletes that I worked with? None. Not one. Not one. Pericarditis. None. Blood clots had one. Now, we all, you know, of course, obviously, when we did surgery, we always worry about those things. So we took precautions. And we had a kid with factor five. And we took precautions with him. And we had, you know, anytime we did any sort of major surgery, you do all the things with your compressing stockings and all those type of things to eliminate those type of things. But we had one kid, he had a femoral triangle infection that developed a blood clot that had to be surgically removed. But it was a, it was a really strange anomaly. You know, it's just one of those things that, that happens and you don't know why he didn't have a clotting disorder or anything. Uh, heart attack. Uh, we had a cardiac arrest in 1989. He had had dilated cardiomyopathy um, and it resulted in death. Uh, because of that, I did a lot. We, we, you know, when a kid dies basically in your arms, rethink your position. I almost got out of the field early. And then, you know, a young man came to me and said, no, I said, if I, I need you working on me if I go down because I know what you tried to say to this young man. And, of course, that was before the time of all the testing that we have now. But we did all the testing we could do. Now we have so much more that we can do. And we only disqualified about five or so in my entire career from some sort of cardiac problem. I don't remember, but a few kids walking into my office and complaining of even chest pain, except after that young man passed away, I had a, uh, my philosophy was if a kid comes in and says his chest hurts after he, they watched a teammate die, we're going to have a full cardiac workup done on that young, on that guy. I think we wound up doing 20 full cardiac workups and all of them were benign. Uh, so, um, but SADS, you know, sudden adult death syndrome in their sleep. We never had anything like that. I never heard of it. Chris, so, Chris, it's, uh, it's, it's stunning. Uh, the prominent athletes and recently retired athletes and others that are just oh, yeah. suddenly uh, dying. Um, but there's never, there's never a mention that they took the vaccine. Uh, and there's never a mention that they didn't take the vaccine. In fact, uh, in each case, uh, there's recently a comedian who just died, and I was reading about it today. Where, where you, you know, it's just, it's just that the, the cause is completely unknown. Do you buy that? No, I don't at all. I don't at all. Uh, that's why I went. That's why I started looking at my list of all these conditions over a 35-year period, roughly, and there's zero. Or one, or two, maybe. You know, I had one kid with a ruptured spleen. I mean, we, could, you know, you have all those types of things. But of all the kids you work with, you would think that if the numbers are what they are right now and what appear to be um, on the rise on certain things that you see every day, is it? You know, I don't. You know, somebody said, "Well, could it be because we just have greater access with more media now?" I said, if anything, sometimes we have less access because they don't tell us everything. You know, they're hiding stuff. Uh, I used to get a report every Monday, if you know, on um, we had had a death or any, across the country. I used to get those, um, or or at least if we had one, we got a report. Uh, let's put it that way. 
it might not be every week or it might not even be every month, but they had a death anywhere. And probably I was going to be called, especially if it was a black athlete, and especially if they had sickle cell trait, I was getting a phone call going, hey, you know, they did everything right, you know, and that sort of thing, trying to try, trying to find out what happened, you know, just to make sure that uh, sometimes it's unpreventable, you know, and other times a kid didn't tell you something that it probably set them up. They're on an antihistamine or they're, they're taking uh, some sort of protein that's got something in it they shouldn't be taking, you know, if they, and so they don't tell everything and then they get themselves in trouble. And that, that usually was the case when you saw a death uh, with those. A lot of the heat illness deaths that we saw long ago were not heat illness at all. They were sickle cell trait. We, I used to have the exact numbers, but uh, I won't quote those because I don't want to uh, get them wrong. But a lot of those were not ever heat related. They were sickle cell related, and nobody knew what they were looking at. It's really hard when someone's taken something into their body and they know they can't get it out uh, to express any regret or remorse, Chris. But you know that probably, you know, one of the things that I had said to a couple of them was, why would you do something to yourself? I don't even know what, I mean, you know, you take take ibuprofen and, and even if we gave ibuprofen to an athlete on the label, we had to give them a two ibuprofen packet with all the warnings and everything on it. They had to have everything on it so they could read it. They didn't have to read it, but at least they had it. I said, why would you give that give a vaccine to someone when you don't even have informed consent? You don't, you don't have the information you need to educate them if they need to take it. You're just telling them you have to take it, and you don't tell them there's a possibility of myocarditis, there's a possibility of a blood clot, there's a possibility of shingles, there's a possibility, and you go on down the list, and you don't even give them, a, even if it's a book that you have to give them, and, and the reason the companies is so long, you couldn't go over it anyway. And I said, why would you do that? Well, because, you know, if we don't do it, and we have a bunch of kids out with COVID, you know, we can't play the game, and we have to forfeit, and I go, well, okay. So it is about greed and money. So that's what it is. It's greed, money, and, and when it all costs. Is that what we're saying? They won't answer me. Wow. Hey, and, Chris. Uh, wow, Chris, that's amazing. You know, we're going to have to leave it here. Uh, this has been a terrific uh, interview. Uh, and I think the audience is going to be thrilled to have somebody who's in uh, basically three halls of fame for athletic training and someone who's really contributed to the modern medical history of sports medicine. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I appreciate you so much. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.